Heavenly Father, as we will read later in the portion of our message today, the book of Revelation opens with a mighty revelation, with a picture of Jesus Christ our Lord. And throughout its pages, we see the 24 elders, we see the living creatures, we see the saints gathered around your throne in worship of your great name. And this is the future we have to look forward to as believers this day. We thank you for these moments in anticipation of perfect worship and praise and glory that we've had to share together. I pray, Lord, now that you would open our hearts to hear your word. I pray that as we hear the things that were declared from eternity past and recorded in time for all time, for all believers, that we would sense, Lord, their power and that they would be persuasive to us, that they would convince us to leave behind the sins that easily beset and to put Christ before us, to walk, Lord, according to the way that you have laid out by the power of the Spirit's work within, and to trust the atoning blood of Jesus Christ alone as our salvation. Guide us in your scriptures now, Holy Spirit, we pray, in the giving and hearing of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God for the great privilege of worshiping together as His bride this morning. I'd encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. will be our text today, verses 23 through 33. Matthew 22. The title of this morning's message is The Stupidity of Skepticism. Skepticism would be a position of doubt, even upon the revelation of Christ, having your questions answered, still reserving the right to obstinately oppose the truth that has been revealed to you. There were, there were several people and classes of people that fell into this category in Matthew 22, and they began to question Christ. They were people who took authority unto themselves and thought that Jesus did not have the right to do and say the things that He did. These people, among them were the Pharisees, who asked Jesus a question in verses 15 through 22, which meant to trip him up. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then the next question comes from another group of people, and that's our subject this morning, Sadducees, in verses 23 through 33, and they have a question about marriage. Next week, we'll cover, Lord willing, verses 34 through 39, where the Pharisees again have a question about what is most important in the law. Jesus answers each, answers each one of these objections in different ways. <clears throat> but the goal of each exchange is the same. It is to show that the unbeliever has no standing, yet Christ is Lord of glory. And this morning is no exception. So stand with me if you're able, and if you would, with your Bible open to Matthew 22. And let's read verses 23 through 33 together. <coughs> Excuse me, follow me as I read. This is the infallible Word of God. The same day Sadducees came to Him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked Him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow <coughs> and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, 
And having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, (coughs) whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of God. You may be seated. (coughs) Today's message finds its structure. My sermon today finds its structure in three points. And I gather them from the shape of this text and also a parallel text that we'll touch on several times from Matthew chapter 3. The structure is as follows. Here's a heading for you. The roots of corrupt thinking. Three roots of corrupt thinking are identified in context. Number one, ignorance of the Word of God. Number two, ignorance of the power of God. And by extension in our text this morning, more compressed in our text in Matthew 3, ignorance of the justice of God. That is to say, if the Sadducees represent any pattern in the unbelieving mind and worldview, it shows at least this that the unbeliever, corrupt in his thinking, is ignorant of the Word of God, is ignorant of the power of God, and is ignorant of the justice of God. May we, be not, may, may we not be found among them. The amazing thing about the Word of God, that is a great hope and encouragement to us today, is that we have in these pages a revelation of truth. There is no excuse for us to be ignorant of the Word of God. There was not for the Sadducees either, by the way. So we'll ask the question, what's sitting between them and their understanding? Secondly, we have the record of God's works in this very word here, as well as the record of His works in creation. So there remains no excuse for us to be ignorant of the power of God. And finally, there is justice to be expected in the future. This is a sure promise that came to us by God incarnate by His own lips and life and promise of what will come, and therefore by His power to declare, being the Alpha and the Omega, there is no excuse to doubt the justice of God. But yet in our sin and in the short-sightedness of our thinking, we are sometimes tempted to be blind and to remain remain obstinate to the clear teaching of the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ and His Holy Word. This message I mentioned to you follows along in Matthew chapter 22, but also Matthew 3. It's a parallel encounter. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is arguing with, once again, a group called the Sadducees. In both texts, the corruption of unbelieving intellectual commitments or presuppositions is highlighted. And we see highlighted both their foundation, those three main points I listed for you already, and its fallout. Those who do not repent of their ignorance of God's Word, His power and justice, there is to be expected justice, judgment, punishment that will come. And these are declared in context. In Jesus' day, and here's the relevant section, or here's the application for us today, generally speaking. 
In Jesus' day, just as in ours, there are, the unbeliever displays his beliefs, his pre-commitments, and indeed there is a tragic irony here. Uh, the, the irony is that in most cases, the unbeliever remains committed to, he insists upon his, uh, his mindset, his worldview, and the things that he assumes to be true. And he remains thus in a position of hopeless, despairing nihilism, or nihilism, which means nothingness. That is to say, if you adopt the position, if you adopt the assumptions of the Sadducee, you do not believe in much at all beyond this life. When you die, you merely become uh, the subject of all other de decomposing carbon life forms. And you're reduced to the sum of your atoms, and each time your matter changes forms, it loses some energy until it is nothing but dust. And that is it. Now, in this, if this is all there is, if there is nothing, no meaning in this life beyond the reality of our biology, then we surely are among everyone, <coughs> even, and, including the beasts of the field, in a hopeless and helpless state. A despairing nihilism. The only difference between us and the cattle, if this were true, that die and wither away is we realize it. We have the sense, the consciousness, to understand that there's not, if nothing is beyond the grave, then ultimately there is no meaning. This is the tragic irony of the unbelieving position. If they deny the truth beyond what is uh, to be experienced in this life here, if they deny the supernatural, that there is a God who rules and reigns from His throne over all of the universe, then He is reduced to a position of hopelessness, depression, and despair. And yet, all along, all that stands in His way, in between Him and the eternal, astonishing, beautiful truth of salvation and the fact that our God reigns, is his sinful pride. You would think that that would be easy enough to sacrifice, would you not? If all I have to let go is my sinful pride, and that opens up the vistas of hope and assurance and truth and meaning, why not just let it go? Why are we in our pride and our sins so obstinately committed to our own ideas, even though in the end they lead only to hopelessness? Well, the fact that this is true also proves that the Word of God is true. And that fact is our sin nature. A dead man cannot resurrect himself. And the Bible says that that sinful pride that we all display is the stench of death. It is the incapacity to grab onto, to understand, and to live in light of the truth. We need what the Sadducees denied. We need a spiritual resurrection. This is salvation. We'll describe salvation in John chapter 3 by the very words of Christ as being born again. A brand new life. A brand new experience. The rejection of Jesus Christ in the face of all the evidence to the contrary only proves that we are dead in our trans transgressions and sins according to Ephesians chapter 2. Contrary to the... Contrary uh, to all of the obvious truth that we have available in the Word of God and even nature itself, the fact that we remain obstinately committed to a hopeless position is a reminder 
That salvation is of the Lord. This last week, <clears throat> I did a quick web search. I was listening to a debate, three Christians versus three atheists. The atheists were committed to the reality of biology, and that's about it. The Christians, of course, were committed to the whole truth of the Word of God. Every word in this book, in its original autographs, is inerrant, infallible, and inspired. And so they went back and forth. At one point, a Christian quoted a famous atheist, you might have heard of him, named Richard Dawkins. If I recall, Jeff Durbin was the pastor who quoted Dawkins. Dawkins, a little bit more consistent than most atheists, declares to us some of the truth of, if his position is true, what you can expect about the afterlife. Now, <clears throat> there was an objection raised to this quote by one of the atheists in the room who said, you know, that context is more in, or the context of that quote is with respect to, you know, things of nature, not human beings. So I went and checked it out myself, and, and it proves, it, and it uh, come to find out that the atheist was wrong. Let me just give you a few phrases. Dawkins says, it must be so, that is, the impersonal and decaying uh, reality of all of the material world. It must be so, he says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, in it, uh, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Those, brothers and sisters, are hopeless words. And let me tell you what's missing in the consciousness of the man that spoke them. He remains willfully ignorant to, number one, the Word of God, number two, the power of God, and number three, the justice of God. They are all blatantly, conspicuously, and damn missing from his consciousness, from his worldview. What if they were present? How would that change his life? Well, he would be a believer. He wouldn't be a, sad, a modern day Sadducee. Let's look a little more closely at the text and we'll find that Richard Dawkins is nothing new. He's not some sophisticated intellectual who in the progress of human thought represents the apex of all that we can achieve through science. No, he does not. He was preceded thousands of years ago by a sect similar to him who denied the supernatural world. No, all we have is the material around us. And they thought themselves self-important and intellectuals too. They were the Sadducees. And they were so arrogant in their suppositions that they presumed to argue with Christ. And this is what they said, Matthew 22, 23. They came to him and saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children... His brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. They lay out this hypothetical. There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother, and so too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, you'll notice this parenthetical detail in the beginning of our text today. That same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees weren't coming to Christ saying, Is there a resurrection? I've doubted it all my life, but I'm willing to hear the truth. I'm curious. I want to know the truth. I recognize that you are sent from God, 
No one but a prophet commissioned by the Almighty could do the works that you do. Can you please teach me about the resurrection? No. This question was designed to trick him, again, like the Pharisees, <coughs> to trip him up. At the bottom of their thinking, they remain committed <coughs> to the presupposition that there is no spiritual afterlife. There is no resurrection. So they carefully craft a question that uses a portion of the Old Testament law <coughs> to try to show that Jesus' perspective and teaching as to the afterlife is foolishness. But <coughs> one day, thing they did not bet on or count on or realize in their hubris is that they were ignorant of the Word of God. Let us not be so. Let us go to the Word of God and discover the purpose of what they were using as the subject of their question. That is marriage, and a specific kind of marriage. Leveret marriage, in fact. Leveret marriage is a Latin term meaning a husband's brother. In the law, turn with me to Deuteronomy 25. <clears throat> In the law of God, when Israel was given the promised land, given a constitution with specific parameters, <coughs> they were told certain things related to areas of life, and among them marriage. God laid out terms and conditions for them to thrive as a nation state that would reflect His truth to the surrounding world and would preserve them for particular purposes as a society. In Deuteronomy 25, we find some of these rules <coughs> with respect to marriage. <clears throat> Notice verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and shall take her as his wife and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his, de of his dead brother, <coughs> that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And verse 7, if the man does not wish <coughs> to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So this is curious indeed, is it not? <clears throat> From our perspective, <clears throat> 21st century mind, looking back, it might seem that this is some sort of primitive law with no real um, purpose to it other than what a... A primitive mind might have concocted for kind of arbitrary purposes of marriage and relationship. But that is, such is not the case. If that is our position, if that's our first response in reading this, we need to realize that we are ignorant of the Word of God. There is purpose in every nook and cranny of God's holy Word. And leveret marriage, <coughs> or marriage involving directions for the husband's brother to carry on his lineage should he die, and he, of course, assuming has no wife and so on. The purpose of leveret marriage is manyfold in Scripture. And the first purpose is political. And we gather that directly from the text. 
This was one way that the nation of Israel was able to, would be able to preserve its national identity. That is, the national identity of each tribe or of, of Israel as a state would be preserved according to tribe via their forefathers. You see, it was extremely important to retain the family connections because their national identity hinged on it. Each tribe was to continue <coughs> to have progeny, to continue to have children, and thus the national identity of each state among the tribes of Israel and that confederacy, if you will, was tied through marriage and children to their forefather, one of the sons of Jacob. And that was a political <coughs> distinctive about ancient Israel. The second purpose that we see of leveret marriage was providential. And now we're building <coughs> a little bit beyond to an even more important reason. Turn with me, if you would, next, so we can become instructed in the Scriptures to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit of God knew that through time there would be <clears throat> many opportunities for circumstances of this fallen world and the enemy's plans to destroy the seed of the Messiah. So God sovereignly ordained certain things to providentially preserve the line of Jesus Christ so that he might be introduced to us and become the way of salvation. And I submit to you that the law of leveret marriage plays into God's <coughs> sophisticated, incredible, multi-level plan to preserve the seed of the Messiah. We find evidence of this in Ruth chapter 4. Let us pick up in verse 13. So Boaz, <coughs> Boaz in context was a kinsman redeemer. Let me back up just a little bit. Verse 11. There's a court case that's being heard before the elders of the city. Boaz wishes to redeem uh, Ruth, who was a relative who had lost her husband. Boaz is the second to next in line to actually continue uh, Boaz or uh, Ruth's late husband's children and lineage. So he desires to do so and then takes his case before the people. <clears throat> and it says um, in verse 11, before the elders, And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. So again, there's a reference to the patriarchal identity. Those were the wives of Jacob, Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So you see, they associate this decision that Boaz is about to make with respect to Ruth to the lineage of God's revelation through his patriarchs, and the continuing of the promised seed. It says, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Notice verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. That is an interesting phrase. Why? Because leveret marriage played a very important role there as well. Though many of the circumstances were surprising on the face of it, when we see God's providential purpose, we see that He preserved the seed of the Messiah through the house of Perez, who was the son of Judah, who incidentally was the kinsman redeemer of Tamar, 
<clears throat> and thus, the lineage of Christ continued because of the provision of leveret marriage. Because of the offspring, it says 12b, that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And who, I ask you this morning, is the son of David? Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the ignorance that the Sadducees had to the Word of God, they used leveret marriage <clears throat> as an opportunity to mock belief in the resurrection and to say that Jesus' teaching was stupid. In the end, they proved themselves the fool. They showed that they were ignorant of the Word of God. They did not recognize nor value the purpose of leveret marriage. And among those purposes was it was providentially ordained by God to on at least two occasions preserve the seed of the Messiah, the very one with whom they argued at that moment, the only one who had the power to redeem their soul. The picture of the Leveret Redeemer <coughs> was one that pointed to Christ, and in these two cases, preserved the lineage of Christ. Now, as we get <clears throat> to a third purpose of leveret marriage and marriage itself, we find, if we are not ignorant to the rest of the Scriptures, glorious prefiguring in these acts. I already told you that prefiguring of Christ is a Redeemer, but marriage itself also prefigures a spiritual reality. It is not something to be taken lightly. It is an institution ordained by God to share with us the gospel. Ephesians 5 says as much, and so does the book of Revelation. We won't go there directly this morning, but turn on your own time to Revelation 7, 9 through 12, and you will see a picture of tribes, <clears throat> so many symbolically represented from each tribe gathered before the throne. The picture quickly gives way to a whole multitude who worship the Lord, and it says that this multitude its constituency is from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We go on through the book of Revelation. We get to chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. The imagery of tribes related to the reality of our future salvation gives way to the picture of marriage used as an object lesson. And in this passage, we see that marriage itself is a foreshadowing of our relationship as saints and the bride of Christ to our bridegroom Christ. That is to say, there is a relationship in glory that supersedes and fulfills marriage relationships here. But what I ask is necessary by way of doctrine to believe, to realize and value <coughs> what leveret marriage and marriage specifically prefigures. What if not resurrection? If you don't believe that there's a resurrection, 
you see no ultimate purpose in marriage. If you don't believe that there is, a, <clears throat> there is God in the future collecting by his sickle, as it were, a harvest to his great glory from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, who has their national identity in the fatherhood of God, if you don't believe that, then you don't see any purpose in, <clears throat> in leveret marriage, any meaning in it. But if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that is what the Bible says about the truth of the afterlife, suddenly all areas of life, every aspect of life, takes on a whole new meaning. So ignorance of the Word of God <clears throat> stands in the way of understanding so many beautiful truths. Also, <clears throat> there's another thing that the Sadducees appeared ignorant to, and Jesus directly addresses this in verse 29. Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. <clears throat> and when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is a direct reference by Jesus to Exodus 3, 5, and 6. This is where God himself reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and, said, I am, and says, I am. He delivers to him the covenant name. He self-discloses the nature of his character with respect to his working through the great fathers of the faith. He says to Moses, you understand me as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Albert Barnes says of this account or of this incident that all the righteous dead, all of whom can properly be called by their God, <coughs> that is, all the righteous dead, all of whom can properly be called righteous by their God, live unto his glory. When God revealed to Moses that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was in the present tense. That is to say that God's, the nature, his very nature, assumes the reality of resurrection. You can't understand God if you don't believe in the resurrection. God is the one who raises the righteous dead back to life. He is the one who... In, to whom we entrust our souls in the afterlife. And he is the one whose power, which we'll study next, can raise us bodily from the dead to live with him forever. This was the truth that God revealed through the very law that the Sadducees said they were experts in. This was the truth that God revealed. And this was also the truth that the patriarchs themselves demonstrated they had faith in. Very quickly, you don't need to turn there necessarily, but in Genesis 50, 22 through 26, as this book closes, <clears throat> this record of special revelation entrusted to a lineage of God's faithful people, we find the, this note in conclusion. Verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. 
Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see here yet unfulfilled promises. Verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The record later shows in the book of Joshua that they indeed carried his bones north. And they buried him in the land of promise. Why? Why did Joseph instruct them to do as much? It's because he believed what the Pharisees denied, that there would be a resurrection. And in the treatment of his body, even his dead, decaying body, there was evidence, there was reverence for God's purposes for him. I mentioned this in conversation this week. We were talking about <clears throat> the merits versus demerits of cremation versus what has historically been known as Christian burial. And it is my position, in case you wonder, not that it's a huge deal, but in case you wonder, it is my position that the best kind of burial is one like that of Joseph, where we honor God's future intentions, even for our physical body, in the last event that happens surrounding our existence on this earth, so far as people recognize because there's going to come a day, God can assemble, by the way, an atom from every last corner of the earth, don't doubt his power to do that. There's coming a day, however, <clears throat> when you will be reorganized in glory, when you will be raised from the dead. And I love the idea of Joseph recognizing that truth. And the last wish that he had was to honor God's word, God's power, and God's resurrection promise for him and for all who are in Christ, ultimately speaking. Pretty incredible. Matthew chapter 3, it's a parallel passage I mentioned to you before, where Sadducees <coughs> interact with John the Baptist. John the Baptist representing the Word of God. Sadducees, again, representing the stupidity of skepticism. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, this is John the Baptist. He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I think you will see in the context of this parallel passage that as the unbelieving skeptic represented by the Sadducee is in conflict with the agent of the Word of God, John the Baptist in this case, the same three areas of ignorance are demonstrated. The Sadducees, by the declaration of John the Baptist, do not understand the Word of God, nor the power of God, nor His justice. He says to them, 
<clears throat> he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice that question. That question was to draw their attention to the prophets of old, namely the word of God that preceded them. Who warned you, if not the patriarchs, the prophets, the record of all God's scriptures prior to my arrival on this scene, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Yet, you remain ignorant to the word of God. Secondly, <clears throat> he says, For I tell you, God is able, verse 9, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What does he identify there? The power of resurrection. If God can create from the dust of the earth Adam in the first place, he can raise up from the stones ones to worship him. And if he can do that, he can certainly raise from the dead all who have succumbed to the natural course of events in this life and are raised again at God's timing unto justice. And that's the final thing he mentions. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand. That's the separating implement to remove the chaff <coughs> from the wheat. He will clear his threshing floor and gathers wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The cost of remaining ignorant to the word of God <coughs> is ultimately paid in justice, in judgment. When the fires of hell burn brighter with the kindling of the skeptics because they stupidly did not deny with willful ignorance the word of Almighty God. Secondly, this morning, ignorance of the power of God. Now, the Sadducees, <coughs> they believed in a power. They believed in an authority, that is to say, but they believed in a false one. It was a faux power, if you will. To whom or to what did the Sadducees ascribe glory and authority? Well, just a little bit of background for this sect for you. There are probably history records for us influenced by the philosophical systems of the Greeks. And if you read or listen to any Greek philosophy, um, do it with uh, uh, an acute discernment and only at little bits, I would suggest, because it's full of <coughs> poison. The Greeks assume things about the nature of reality that are absolutely antithetical to Scripture, untrue. The Greeks were blinded in their erudite, self-described anyway, intellectualism, asceticism, and everything else. The incredible things they built and the powerful things that they said perished with them and look forward to the day of judgment, not the day of universal veneration. We venerate the ancient Greeks to our own peril. The Sadducees were highly influenced, it seems, by the way they thought, by Greek philosophy. They had syncretized it, that is, to mix two things that are actually opposed to one another to try to do the impossible, mix them together. And in so doing, they denied the Word of God, ultimately. And these are the areas that they denied. They denied the bodily resurrection, as we've stated. They denied a future state, a future reality beyond death. They denied a separate existence of the soul after death. They didn't believe there was any such thing as a soul that could exist in some state separate from the body for a period of time in a realm, supernaturally speaking. They also denied the existence of supernatural entities like angels and evil spirits. In a word or in a phrase, they exalted reason over revelation. They said, none of those things make sense to us. We can't test them in a laboratory. I've never seen them with my two eyes. I've never experienced a resurrection. Therefore, it can't happen. It does not exist. Sound familiar? Is there anyone these days? Are there any schools of thought that yet remain these days that exalt reason over revelation? 
You believe that stupid book? Let me ask you a question. If God's so loving, why did he kill all those people in the Old Testament? What is that? It's a test question, just like the Sadducees brought to Christ that demonstrates ignorance of the word of God. Now, don't get me wrong. That question can be asked sincerely, and it has a sincere answer. But if the skeptic remains committed to his unbelief, that is not a sincere question. That is a statement of rebellious unbelief. He must repent before he will come to the knowledge of the truth. He has put his trust in another power, not the power of God. He denies the supernatural. He exalts and worships on the throne of reason. Recently, our president <clears throat> expressed a little solidarity for the plight that those in Paris are in right now where 130-some people or thereabouts were killed by terrorist blasts. And he said, France stands for the timeless, I'm paraphrasing, it's close enough. Probably. <clears throat> so it, it, he says, uh, so Obama gets up there and says, Paris, stand, or Paris or France stands for the timeless values of human progress. Egalité, fraternité, and some other thing pronounced in French. Three things. Equality, liberty, and fraternity or brotherhood. Those three values, in my research, I've studied them in the past, those three values first came into public prominence at the time of the French Revolution. And the French Revolution was not just a declaration of independence from the tyranny of government. The French Revolution was a declaration of independence from any power whatsoever, including God. It was a godless movement of reason over revelation where wicked man got out his Babel-building hammer and decided once again that he was going to exalt himself against the knowledge of God. And how many thousands of heads rolled off the guillotine later and the fools still hadn't learned their lesson? The stupidity of skepticism. And yet the stupidity remains today. Is it not dumb to hail to values that were celebrated when 47 some thousand people lost their heads in what was called the reign of terror, to say we stand with those timeless values when 129 people just got killed by terrorists? Can you see, even in our modern day, when you deny the word of God, his very law that not only made provisions for leveret marriage, but also said, thou shalt not kill, that when you deny that, you fall into the stupidity of skepticism. You exalt another God, and you deny his power. John Flavel, he was a Puritan, in stark contrast to our president, the French Revolution, to the Sadducees, and anyone who denies the authority of Christ over all governments over this earth, he said the following, I know there's nothing in the word or in the works of God that is repugnant to sound reason. But there are some things in both which are opposite to carnal reason, as well as above right reason. Therefore, our reason never shows itself more unreasonable than in summoning those things to its bar which transcend its sphere and capacity. That's a little bit <clears throat> complicated, perhaps. But, Basically, what he is saying is, if you don't understand something, that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't exist. After all, you're a tiny, finite, created creature, and you are testimony to an eternal, 
all-powerful, creator, all-wise God. Worship him by saying, I don't know it all. Worship him by saying, there are some things that are too high for me to figure out. And if my puny brain has a problem with this book, the deficit is in my head. It is not in the mind of God. There is no deficit in his eternal wisdom. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Of him, by him, through him, and unto him are all things. Revelation, that is the knowledge of God over reason, is the position of the believer. But if we are ignorant of the power of God, we will substitute ourselves for him, just like Adam and Eve, and repeat the same old cycle of original sin over and over. Secondly, the Sadducees were ignorant of the power of God, and in so doing, they demonstrated not just an ignorance of lack of knowledge, not that kind of ignorance, but a wishful, a willful ignorance. Turning back just one page to chapter 21, we have this account, and I, tr- I, I assume that the parties that questioned Christ after this event witnessed this, at least they would have certainly heard of it. Verse 14, after Jesus cleanses the temple, We have this note in the text. And the blind and the lame came to him, that is to Christ, in the temple, and he healed them. Listen to this. But when the chief priests and the scribes, doesn't say this, but I assume the Pharisees, saw the wonderful things that he, that is Jesus, did. That is, they saw, they witnessed with their own eyes, their own ears, the testimonies, the healings of the blind and the lame, receiving their sight and running and dancing for praise of Almighty God. Joining with children crying in verse 15, Hosanna to the Son of David. They, that is these obstinate skeptics looking on, they were indignant and they said to him, to Jesus, do you hear these sayings, what these are saying? Jesus said, yes. Have you never read? In other words, are you ignorant of the word of God? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. (coughs) Once again, with the word of God in view, this event takes on such an amazing significance. We studied it in some detail by comparing a prior text, prophetically adding weight to Jesus' miraculous healings in this context in Matthew 21. That text was 2 Samuel 5, or 6 through 8 where the mockers and the skeptics of David's day said that he would never conquer Jerusalem. And they said, even if it was guarded by the blind and the lame, you, the so-called anointed king of Israel, your efforts will remain unsuccessful here. Well, of course, they were proving the fool when David conquered them. But there would come a Messiah, a son of David, who not only rout his enemies, but would actually conquer blindness, ironically, and lameness itself. And so Jesus demonstrated the superior power of God in this miracle, power over death and disease. If he could open closed eyes, if he could set the lame free, he could also forgive sins, we find in the text. And he could certainly raise the dead back to life. Now, I mentioned to you that the children cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Well, the skeptics said, by what authority do you do these things? Instead of surrendering, they question. Well, there was a crowd who heard Jesus' exchange with the Sadducees in our text this morning. They responded quite differently. 
even though the Sadducees remain hard of heart, listen to the response of, the, of others in verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The word astonished in the original Greek, ekplaso. Ekplaso is a word that carries more weight behind it than perhaps a single English equivalent could attempt to do. I got in my studies, I found this phrase. Ekplaso means to strike out of self possession one's senses. It literally means to be thunderstruck with amazement, to strike out of self possession of one's senses. Perhaps an equivalent would be to, in our modern language, would be to be blown away, dumbfounded, paralyzed with shock. A moment where you can't move or think about anything else except what you just beheld with your two eyes. When we encounter the words of Christ and when we see His healings recorded in Scripture, ex so, that word astonishment is the correct response. When we see what Jesus has done, when I, our eyes are awakened to the truth, when our mind comes to grips with reality, we ought to repent of our ignorance because in the end, it's not lack of knowledge, it's refusing to come to grips with the knowledge that surrounds us, surrounds us in nature, and is declared to us in God's holy word. When we bow before Christ, it ought to be in an attitude of complete amazement, being laid out, devoid of any notion of self-importance, in fact, to be struck out of self-possession of one's own faculties. I am nothing in light of Christ. This was the response of the faithful time and again. Jesus did a mighty healing, calming the waves of the sea. He spoke to the storm. What was the response of Peter? Was it, oh sweet, we're going to defeat the Romans. Or, show me how you did that. That was so cool. No, he said, depart from me, for I am undone. I am a wicked sinner. And what was happening in this moment was Peter was being struck out of self-possession of his very faculties and senses. In that moment of revelation, he was considering <clears throat> soberly the reality of the power of God. And this is what we ought to do. This is the right response. May the Spirit grant it unto us. Very quickly, let me give you a record of response. Oh, it's, there's so many, too many to, to touch on. Let me just march through in kind of bullet point fashion from the book of Revelation. In each case, as I read this, the same Greek word for power appears, which is dunamis. And in Hebrews 4, 1 through 3, door opens and John sees into heaven. The first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you. What must take place after this? At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. 
Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. As we read this, we get the sense of the power of God, do we not? And as we continue to read through the book, we see in contrast to the Sadducees, the right way to respond to this sort of thing, as the crowds did when, Peter, or when uh, Jesus taught, and as Peter did when he stilled the waves. There are, for instance, a multitude gathered around the throne in Revelation 7.12 who say, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power or dunamis and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The elders in chapter 11.17, which is significant because elders indicates some kind of self-evident authority. These are ones who themselves are important so far as the hierarchy of human government is concerned. But they pay no attention to their so-called, <clears throat> or to their eldership when they are in the context of the mighty power of God. Listen to what they do in verse 17 of chapter 11. We give thanks to you, O Lord Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great dunamis power and begun to reign. Before this, verse 16, we have a record of their actions. They who sit on the thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. They fell down in the presence of the greatness and power of God in His Lord and Christ Jesus. They were struck out of self-possession of their very senses. We could go on and on uh, compiling a record of these kinds of responses among the faithful. The very next chapter, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power dunamis and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of, the, uh, for the accuser of our brothers has been, laid, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They have loved not their lives even unto death. In closing this morning, and final point, which we don't have a whole lot of time to touch on, there's a third thing I mentioned to you that we're blind to if we remain skeptical as to who Christ is, and that is the justice of God. Matthew 3, 7 through 12, the justice of God for those who do not bow before him, who are not wheat and the end proved to be chaff, is evident when the winnowing fork separates and the chaff is burned with unquenchable fire. Those who fear the Lord and know that history has a conclusion where wheat and chaff are separated, where sheep and goats are separated and judged, they live in a different way. They surrender to their Lord Jesus Christ. They have a knowledge of His presence and they cling tightly to His way of salvation. In our text this morning, Matthew 22, as we continue to flash forward or move forward through the text, we see in verse 23, seven woes declared upon the Pharisees as an example of those self-ascribed in their authority who deny Him and the judgment they deserve, the justice that is coming. The proud city of Jerusalem and all she represented receives judgment in chapter 24. And in 25, as we will study these in coming weeks, we see in verses 31, through the end of the chapter, that there is a final judgment prophesied. And those who are in good standing with Christ are saved, and all others in the final verse, they go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Also, I'll recall to your attention in the book of Hebrews, the justice of God is not only shown in the negative, punishment on the unbeliever at the end of days, it's also shown in the positive, where the oath and promise of God made in Hebrews 6 that we've studied of late will be fully manifest in the experience of every believer, where we with the patriarchs and not apart for them, from them according to Hebrews 11, 39 through 40, receive the glorious promise of our salvation, the rest in glory, the promised land of heaven. God will be faithful to bring justice at the close of history, to punish sin, and to bring promises to those who are redeemed. In the end, we find that there is no neutrality. You're either with me or against me, Jesus says. Where did the Pharisees fall? Were they with Christ or were they against Him? Oh, they, they were against Him, most certainly. Acts chapter 4, after Jesus had not only done the works recorded up to this point in Matthew 22, but He'd also died and then literally resurrected and ascended into glory. And now the message of these things was going forward in the gospel proclamation of the apostles who were among the first persecutors, if not the Sadducees. Acts 4.1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You see, they're still annoyed. Their little pet stupid doctrine they held so tightly to they're now willing to put men in jail because they were testifying to its truth. And they testified to it with the most incredible witness in all of history, the resurrection of the God-man from the grave, along with all of his mighty works that he had done among them. Chapter 5 records the same. Thus, at the, in the end, the Sadducees proved to be among the most motivated persecutors of Christ. But, brothers and sisters, on the other hand, if we are not ignorant of the Word of God, if we love and value it, if we realize and value His power, and if we understand He is a just God and our sins can be paid for in the death of Jesus Christ, we won't be among the persecutors of the church. We will be among the motivated martyrs, ones who love Him even unto death, ones who know that they can go and pay the ultimate price because... How can you lose if God can raise you from the dead? If our God has that kind of power, we can have grace to suffer. If our God can raise the dead, if He can heal the lame, He can cleanse us from our sins. And so wherever this message finds us, if we find any hint of skepticism, the stupidity of unbelief in our hearts this morning, may we confess it and believe in Him who has revealed Himself through all of Scripture. To deny the gospel is to not <clears throat> mock it successfully. But instead, a denial of the gospel, ultimately speaking, is to, is to demonstrate its authority and veracity by your own destruction. However, if you die in, in the service of our great King for the gospel, you have joined the witnesses that have gone before and await us in Hebrews 11, the great promises of our God where we will rest with them and worship with all of those that we read of in Revelation, singing, Worthy is the Lamb, casting our crown before Him and praising Him forever and ever. Let us close in prayer. <clears throat> oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Holy Spirit this morning. 
Because without the Holy Spirit, the promised paraclete, helper, advocate, the teacher of truth, present and real with us, we could not understand the word. We would not see your power. We would not believe in your justice. But I pray, Lord, <coughs> that in start, sharp contrast to most of this wicked world, the Spirit would be alive and active in each of our hearts this morning, active to have firm faith, a resolve to commit ourselves to Christ, and also active to demonstrate to others, by the word of our testimony, the blood of the Lamb, that we love not our lives unto death, because we serve a God who has the power to raise us from the dead. And it is as sure, as sure to us as the fact that Christ is reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thank you, Jesus, for this time. And we pray this all in your holy name. Amen.